So we're coming to the end of our, our, our look at Nehemiah, and we're in chapters 12 and 13, the end of the story this morning. Um, it's been quite a journey, hasn't it, as we've done this little autumn series, this time of rebuilding of Jerusalem and the walls of Jerusalem, as we've gone through the ups and downs of, of the people and the travails and the joys of, of life as God's people, as we find ourselves often mirrored in Scripture. Um, we're coming to the end of this reconstruction project uh, in Jerusalem. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, they belong together. They are one piece. And they tell the story of three movements in God's people. You, first of all, we have the story of uh, Zerubbabel uh, in Ezra. And he's the first leader to come uh, and to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem and, and leads a group of people out of exile to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. Then 60 years later, Ezra comes, whose main role was to restore the Torah and the community, the teaching of the people of God, to lead a spiritual and a social renewal and revival. And that's what Ezra did as one of the spiritual leaders of his day. And then parallel to that was the story of Nehemiah, and Nehemiah, who led the rebuilding of the walls of the city of Jerusalem, and that's the story that we've been following these last several weeks. Three movements, three leaders, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah. A time of restoration, a time of renewal, a time of reformation. Exciting times in many ways for the people of God as they see the city of Jerusalem, this great city on a hill, come back to life, a people re-established, out of exile, momentous occasions. And chapter 12 of Nehemiah, which we're starting on today, is the culmination of a time of spiritual renewal that's recorded in chapters 8 to 12 that we've been looking at these last few weeks. And so the word of God has been spoken and listened to. Ezra's been standing and teaching the word of God. The people have responded to it. There have been times of confession. There have been times of celebration where they've celebrated again the ancient feasts of the Feast of the Tabernacles or booths where they remembered the times in the wilderness and how God had helped them and delivered them and brought them through. And there were times of great joy where Nehemiah commanded the people that they should rejoice that it wasn't a time for weeping, it was a time for rejoicing. And the joy of the Lord is your strength, he said to them as he challenged them to go and to celebrate these great feasts. But then there were times of the sackcloth and ashes and confession and renewal and uh, the people renewing the covenant, the agreement that they had with God. And David took us to a couple of weeks there on the renewing the covenant of the people of God and looking again at, uh, at keeping the Sabbath and and bringing the tithes into the storehouse and, and, and honoring these ancient agreements that God had made with his people. And now, as we come to this chapter 12, it's party time. It's a time to celebrate what God has done. The walls have been rebuilt. Nehemiah wants to dedicate them to the Lord. So we'll read from verses 27 uh, to 31a of chapter 12. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived 
and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals and harps and lyres. The singers also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the village, villages of the Netophathites, from Beth Gilgal and from the area of Geba and Asmapheth, for the singers had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. And when the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people and the gates and the wall. I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. Two large choirs on top of the walls. One of the choirs went right, led by Ezra, and one of the choirs went left, led by Nehemiah. They were on top of the city walls. These were the walls that Tobiah had said in chapter 4, verse 3, if a fox climbed up on those walls, they would fall down. You're not going to be successful, Nehemiah. And now he leads up these choirs that sashay along these walls, nine feet wide walls, as they begin to celebrate the completion of this project. The people are laughing and they are rejoicing. The instruments are playing and there's a lot of joy in the air. It's a wonderful scene of celebration and thanksgiving. And after they had celebrated on the walls, and dedicated them, the people then moved off the top of the walls where they had been dancing and singing. And we read on in verses 40 to 43 how they moved then to the temple. The two choirs that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God. And so did I, together with half the officials as well as the priests. And I'm not going to read all their names. And the choirs sang under the direction of Jezrehiah. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. I was out walking the dog the other night, and I could hear the roar of the Argyle crowd from the stadium across the city. I could hear, I, I don't know if, if Plymouth had just scored or what, but... As I'm walking the dog here, just on Aster Plainfield, I could, I could hear the shouts from the stadium right across the city. And as, a, as impressive as the Green Army is, and some of you are in it, uh, it was nothing compared to the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem that could be heard far away. They could hear it far away, the choirs singing in response to each other, different sides of the city, call and response, and uh, they were singing to each other, and they were laughing and, and rejoicing. Um, I, I remember uh, take, taking um, the youth away, uh, um, we were in different minibuses, and we had radio contact, and we would sing to each other from one minibus to the other. We'd make up songs and make fun of the other minibus, and we'd be singing to them, and they'd be singing back to us. Well, these choirs, they were singing to each other, and for miles around, you could hear the tumult coming out of Jerusalem. The enemies that had come against this people, they could hear them celebrating and rejoicing in these impressive scenes. We were in Jerusalem a few years ago, 
And there was a bar mitzvah procession around the walls of Jerusalem. It was something to behold. The celebration of a boy becoming a man. And all the family were there and they were all dancing and they were all singing. And there was joy and they were throwing him up in the air. And, and uh, they were all walking around the walls of Jerusalem. It was a great sense of joy and celebration. Another time we were in Jerusalem and we were there for, um, we were there for uh, a, a time of celebration. I think it was even Sabbat, but, uh, Shabbat, but they were, uh, they, we were sitting in a, in a kibbutz and they were eating their meals and they were singing and they were rejoicing as families. And there's just that sense of joy, that sense of celebration that just arises out of this scene in Jerusalem. It must have been, it must have been amazing to behold and, you know, it is so important that we celebrate our victories. It's so important that we celebrate and give thanks to God for his acts of kindness and mercy and deliverance. This week was Thanksgiving. And uh, we have an American connection in our household, so we, we like to celebrate Thanksgiving. But you don't have to wait for Thanksgiving to give thanks to God. What did Paul write when he wrote to the Thessalonian believers? He, he, he said, rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. When I was growing up in church, we used to sing this song, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God. And that's what, that's what Paul writes to these Thessalonian believers. And he, he says, in everything, give thanks. Rejoice always. Find what you can find to celebrate and give thanks for. And that's what the people here are doing. And Paul wrote to the Philippians and he encouraged them yeah, to pray. He encouraged them to bring their petitions, to ask God for the things that were troubling them. He said, bring your prayers and petitions. But then he adds the caveat, with Thanksgiving, make your request known to God. Thankful, joyful people are contagious, are they not? And of course, it's, it's not all sweetness and light. Not everything smells of roses. It's not that we pretend that it does. You don't have to read too much. We haven't had to read too far and too hard in the book of Nehemiah to find times of great trouble and distress and weeping and, and challenge and, uh, and fights and conflict and you know, it's not painted as a, as a, a picture of, of, of a problem-free existence, but there are times throughout this story that are interspersed with joy, with great joy. It's a phrase that is repeated over and over in Nehemiah, great joy. There are times of great joy and rejoicing. And as we enter Advent today, let, let's determine, let's really choose at the end of a trying and difficult couple of years, to be thankful, to celebrate together the good news of great joy that is announced to all mankind. If, if we can't celebrate this, we can't celebrate anything. I bring to you good news of great joy for all mankind. Today, a saviour has been born to you. And as we wait for this Savior in this Advent period, it is a time of great joy. And I would challenge you in this, in this tail end of 
the pandemic. And whatever announcements come out of Downing Street, whatever is said at a, at a national level, I think we must stand above that at times. And if, if you, like I, keep reading the newspaper and watching the news, you find yourself spiraling down again into despondency, into, oh, you are kidding me. I just, you are kidding me. And it is so depressing at times. But I think at times, as the people of God, we have to rise above and speak prophetically into into the circumstances and be, and be a people of celebration and joy and peace. And know the peace of God which transcends all understanding. And I would challenge you in these coming weeks to celebrate whatever you can, in whatever way you can, however you can, to give thanks for all of God's good gifts to you and to us. Take every opportunity to count your blessings to grasp a moment. Let's celebrate. Let, let, let God turn your mourning into dancing. Let God turn your defeat into victory like he did with Nehemiah and this people of Israel. I just ima imagine Nehemiah as he's dancing along these walls and remembering all of those things that were said to him. These walls will never get built. They'll never stand. And he's like, That's, this is some foxes walking on these walls. Look at us now and they're, they're celebrating and they've got good reason to celebrate. Now if we were writing the screenplay to this book, the, kind of the movie for this book, if we were producing the movie, we'd finish right there. <laughs> this is the end of the story. Uh, the music, the dancing, the celebrations, the dust clouds spiraling up out of Jerusalem, the camera panning out from Jerusalem as the, as the Hans Zimmer music plays, and the, and, the, and the titles start to roll down. What a great story. What a great victory. What a great ending, renewal and revival and restoration. And the walls rebuilt and the people celebrating and the choirs singing. That's where you would finish the story. The sun is setting. We'd all leave the cinema feeling happy. We all like a happy ending, don't we? And the movies that leave you feeling unhappy or discontent or discombobulated, we don't like those kind of stories. Leave us hanging. The end of your favorite sitcom series and it doesn't end the way you wanted it to end. Or, um, but this is what Nehemiah does. It doesn't end at chapter 12. It goes into chapter 13. And there's more trouble ahead. There's a postscript. And this is what happens next. And after 12 years of this building project that Nehemiah's been involved in, he returns to his day job. If you remember the start of our story, when he left King Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes said, you can go, <laughs> you can rebuild Jerusalem, but you need to come back. How long are you going to be gone? Well, he's gone 12 years. He's been on this project. But then he returns as we read in chapters 12 and 13, returns uh, to uh, Susa. He returns to Artaxerxes and to his previous job, as he said that he would do. And then he comes back. And chapter 13 is Nehemiah's return to Jerusalem after having gone and come back. And we read what he finds. And I'm going to borrow just four titles from Charles Swindle's book, 
just where he describes what Nehemiah finds in chapter 13 and just some of the things for us to watch out for. The first thing that Nehemiah finds when he comes back is he finds them uh, elements of the people of God in, in compromising companionship. In chapter 13, verses 4 to 9, before this, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of God. He was closely associated with Tobiah. That's the same Tobiah that was Nehemiah's enemy and told Nehemiah he'd never succeed. And this priest, Eliashib, he had provided Tobiah with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. Uh, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I'd returned to the king. And sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. So here's a, a compromising relationship between Eliashib, who's the priest, and Tobiah, who is the enemy of the people of God and, and Nehemiah's nemesis from this story. Tobiah had been an enemy of God and a thorn in Nehemiah's side. And Nehemiah had faced him repeatedly as Tobiah had tried to stop the construction of the wall and had personally criticized and attacked and uh, assaulted Nehemiah. And now Nehemiah finds to his absolutely, <laughs> he cannot believe it, he comes back after being away and he finds that Eliashib the priest has moved Tobiah into the courtrooms, into the courts of the temple. He's moved out the grain offerings uh, that are, are supposed to be stored there and he's given Tobiah a suite of rooms right in the middle of the temple of God. And Nehemiah's having absolutely none of this. He gets Tobias's stuff and he chucks it out. <laughs> Get him out of here, what are you doing? And uh, he clears out the rooms. He even has the rooms fumigated and cleansed. And then he moves the grain and, and, the, and the things and the temple things that are supposed to be in those rooms, he moves them back in. Charles Swindle writes about this kind of relationship. He says, our, our, our companions do help determine our character. And we become like those that we spend time with. Do you have any idea of the effect that your friends are having on your life. And uh, this was a challenge that, uh, that Nehemiah took on, this compromising companionship. Have you any idea of the effect that your friendships have on your life? Nehemiah gets Tobias' stuff, he throws it out of the temple, and he has the place cleansed. The second thing that uh, Charles Swindle highlights as he, as he looks through chapter 13, um, he's got compromising companionship, then he's got this financial fiasco, he calls it, in, in uh, verses 10 to 14 of chapter 13. I also learned, this is Nehemiah, I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials, and I asked them, why is the house of God neglected? 
Then I called them together and I stationed them at their posts. And all Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine and oil into the store, storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms. I made Hanan son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because these men were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for tr- distributing the supplies to their brothers. Remember me for this, O oh my God. Do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. The people have broken their promises to bring the tithes into the storeroom. Remember, David was talking about this in chapter 10 and chapter 11. The people are all moved. They make their covenant with God. God, we will be faithful. We will bring our tithes and our offerings into the storeroom. And now Nehemiah comes back after having been away. He finds that the priests and the Levites who are supposed to be receiving these tithes have not been receiving them. They've gone back to their fields to work a day job because uh, there's no finances flowing into the storerooms and into the, into the temple. And Nehemiah says, you've broken your promises. You were supposed to be bringing in the tithes into the storehouse, and you've not done what you said that you'd do. And he challenged them. He stood up, and he, he wasn't somebody, Nehemiah, who was, who was going to dodge these issues. He said, this is a problem. You're disobeying God, and you need to put it right. And he challenged them on their failure to obey this edict. He was very forthright. So he took on this financial fiasco. And the third thing that Nehemiah found as he came back and found this atrophying kind of effect in the city of Jerusalem, as I said, we would have liked to end on chapter 12 and the dancing and the singing, but this is the postscript. This is what we find in chapter 13 as we come to the end of our story. The third thing that he finds is that he finds a secularized Sabbath. So he's, he's found compromise and companionship, this financial fiasco, and now he's found that they have secularized the Sabbath. Remember David speaking about the Sabbath and the need to keep the Sabbath of God, this command to have a day of rest. So this is what we find then in chapter 13, verses 15 to 22. In those days, I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. Men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your forefathers do the same thing? so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city. Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. And when evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. And once or twice the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them, and I said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. And from that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. And then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. I love that verse 21. If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. (laughs) 
That is not a charismatic laying on of hands. <laughs> I'll lay hands on you and pray for you. That is Nehemiah saying in vernacular of our day, if you come here again, I'll smack you one in the face. <laughs> so Nehemiah is not mincing his words here. He's saying you need to stop it. You need to stop trading on the Sabbath. So they're kind of dodging around the walls and, well, we're not allowed in, but we'll just stay near the walls of Jerusalem and we'll sell these goods. And, and Nehemiah's stationing his people on the walls. He's uh, at the gates. He's saying, you need to stop this. You need to, you need to do what you agreed that you would do to keep the Sabbath day holy. And they've, they've slipped away from that. It's easily done, isn't it? If you just skip church the once, you know, there's other stuff to do on a Sunday and the kids have got sports games and there's, you know, there's Christmas shopping to do and there's so much to do and, well, we could just miss church this once and then, well, we'll miss it again and kind of average attendance these days and maybe two in four of, of going to church and before you know it, you know, lightning doesn't fall down on you when you miss church and, and nothing really happens and I never realized what it was to have a free Sunday morning. And before you know it, you kind of slip away from prioritizing the day that God has set aside to worship him and to have recreation and rest and to recharge your batteries and to worship with God's people. Times of worship and rest and recreation that are mandated by God, as Abraham Heschel said, you know, this is so important that God commanded it. He didn't leave it as an optional extra for us. And that is what happened here. And Nehemiah comes and he sees what's happening and he challenges them head on. And sometimes we need to do the same. And he rebukes them and um, threatens to lay hands on them. Maybe we need a little bit of that. And fourthly, the thing that he, he sees is... Uh, he sees domestic disobedience, and that's found in verses 23 to 27. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, or the language of one of the other peoples, and they did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men, and I pulled out their hair. <laughs> I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? And so, um, you know, who, who we marry is important. And, and this is not about interracial marriage. This is about, um, this is about, the Israelites crossing over the line of their, of their faith and their covenant relationship with God with the people around them that worshipped other gods. And as they intermarried with them, their faith was diluted and dissipated and disappeared. And I remember when I was a kid going to the youth group, and I remember my youth leader saying, <laughs> he got a chair and he made some big guy stand up on the chair and then he got one of the girls to come and he said, you pull her up here and you pull him down and see who wins. And always the girl managed to pull the guy off the chair. And, he, and he, his point was, just be careful about your relationships. Be careful who you relate with. Be careful who you get romantically involved with. Um, be, be careful about your faith and the importance of putting Christ first. 
You know, Jesus said something really shocking one day. He said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to, you know, if you can't love me and not hate your, your father and your mother and your, and your children. Now, he didn't, he didn't mean that you, you hate them. What, what Jesus was saying was that God and Christ has to have first priority in our lives over every relationship, over every familial relationship, over every uh, marital relationship. And what Nehemiah found here was a people that were deeply, deeply compromised in their relationships with those around them and in their marriage relationships. And he challenged them greatly. Now, what we also have to remember is that this is a narrative, okay? So when we read narrative in the Bible, it doesn't provide us with doctrine. It doesn't tell us what we need to do. So it doesn't mean that if you go and marry someone you shouldn't marry, that we as pastors should come and grab you by the hair and pull you and smack you on around the chops. It's, um, it's a narrative. It's, um, it's the time. I'm not saying we should do that. But it does show the strength of, of Nehemiah's leadership and intention around these issues. The other thing that he highlighted then was because of this compromise in, in your faith and in walking with the Lord is that your kids, they don't even speak the language of Israel anymore. They can't even read the scriptures. They can't understand the scriptures because they only speak now these, these languages of those around, but they don't speak the language of Judah. And so it is incumbent on us as, as parents to, to raise our children in the house of God. And, and parents, as I've discussed with you and we've been through it ourselves, sometimes on a Sunday morning, it is easier not to come to church if you've got little children and they're in, you know, crash half the time and it's like, what is the point of bringing them to church? It's so much effort. And the kids are such hard work and it would be just easier to stay at home. But it is incumbent on us as parents to raise our children in the house of God, to understand the language of the house of God, to understand the scriptures of the people of God. And of course, our kids own and our youth ministries do a fantastic job in inputting into our children. But it is we set the ceiling as parents to bring our children faithfully into God's house. And sometimes, I promise you, it won't feel like it's worth it, but it is. <laughs> because you're instilling into the storeroom of their heart, you're instilling into them the presence of God and the teachings of Scripture. And the Bible says, you know, you teach a child in the way that they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. Now, we all know there's no guarantees as we raise our children in the faith. And then, you know, sometimes they drift away from the faith, but as, as they were doing here. But th th there's some challenges here in chapter 13, are there not, in our, in our relationships and the way we relate to others and the friendships that we keep, in our covenantal faithfulness, whether it's with our, our giving and our Sabbath keeping. There are some, there are some challenging words here. And in, in, in dealing with the marriage relationship and then in the dealing with the children and the relationship of the children here, the, the, the domestic disobedience. And what, what Nehemiah did in each of these cases was he took the issue by the throat and he challenged it. And he spoke very forcefully about it. And there are times where perhaps we must do that as well. And so we have here, <laughs> at the end of our story, we have, which happens actually throughout Ezra and Nehemiah, there are three cycles of reformation and then decline and anticlimax. And reformation and decline and anticlimax. And that is where we seem to end as we come to the end of our story. 
is Nehemiah stalking around Jerusalem, threatening to beat people up and pull their hair out. And uh, <laughs> it's like, we should have ended on chapter 12. <laughs> There's a musical term, you know? Have you ever heard in a chorus or a song, when, when a song finishes on a chord that is it's not, it's not the chord that you want to end on. It's an unresolved chord. It, it is an imperfect cadence, as the musicians call it. Um, because there's, it, it's left, we're left hanging with a note. You ever heard music? I'm not, I'm not a gifted musician, but you, you know when you hear music, you're waiting for that relief of that final chord. You're waiting for that, for the conclusion of the, the correct, the perfect cadence rather than the inauthentic cadence or the imperfect cadence when we finish on the wrong chord and it feels like when we get to the end of Nehemiah that we're left hanging on a chord that is a bit discordant it's a bit it's it leaves us dissatisfied Uh, it leaves us with an off note and and that's because it is it's it's because as we highlighted earlier in the cycles of the people of Israel reformation repentance rebellion (laughs) Reformation, repentance, rebellion. And, and here, a couple of chapters earlier, yeah, we'll follow God, we'll sign the covenant, we'll do what he says. And then here, Nehemiah, not so long after he comes and he finds, he finds them back where they started, if you like. And we're left with this discordant, dissatisfied note. And Jenny started our service today by talking about this carol that we sing, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And, and it talks about people looking for a Messiah, for a Savior. And, and this line I've preached on on Christmas Eve, and, and it says so much that the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Yeah. I'm, met, I'm met in Jesus. And, and, and as we come to the end of Nehemiah, we feel dissatisfied. We feel the people are still floundering around in their, in their mess. And it's because they are. It's because they can't keep this wretched covenant. They can't do it. As try as they might, they just can't do it. And throughout the ages, they couldn't do it. They couldn't keep the covenant. They couldn't keep the agreement as hard as they tried. The best of them, the greatest of their leaders failed. The greatest of the people failed. And there's this cycle of failure and longing. And that's where we end this story. And as we end this story, it is so fitting as we come into Advent and we shift our eyes towards a Messiah and a Savior who would come and say, I'm going to bring you a new covenant. I'm going to bring you a new agreement and I'm going to pay the price for this agreement. And it's the fulfillment of Ezekiel and it's the fulfillment of Jeremiah and it's not an external covenant that's, covenant that's written with ink and pen or with the blood of the sacrifices of animals. It is a covenant that will be written in the blood of a saviour. It's the covenant that will be written in my blood, Jesus says. This is the blood of a new covenant that I will pour out for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. And so when we sing the line, the hopes 
and fears of all the years I met in thee tonight, it is so true that these longings, these failings, these falterings, they are met in Christ, in the coming of a Messiah, which is why when the angels pronounced prophetically, we're bringing you good news of great joy, that one is born to you today and he will save his people from their sins. His name will be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And so there is a great kind of linking today from the end of our story of Nehemiah and this discordant note that leaves us hanging. It's because we are waiting. We're waiting for that resolution. We're waiting for that final chord to bring relief to our souls. And it's found in Jesus. And you know what? We're still waiting. <laughs> We're still waiting. The, the Bible says that, uh, that all of creation is groaning <laughs> with longing. We're longing for the second coming of Christ, for the consummation of the kingdom of God. We're longing for the time where there are no more tears, where there's no more pain, where there's no more suffering, where there's no more death, where there's no more bereavement. We're, we're waiting. And we're still got, we're hanging on this cord. And, and nothing can satisfy it. And we can't keep this covenant by our own efforts. And when we try to do it, or when we try and make other people do it, we just get legalistic, and we just get condemning, and we just get judgmental. And Jesus, he comes, and he brings that final chord, that final relief. And in the first coming that we celebrate at Advent and at Christmas, he brings us this sense of freedom and peace and joy. He is, a, he is the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He is the one who was to come. He is the one who was to come out of Bethlehem, out of Ephrathah. He is the one that was prophesied. He is the one that the people of Nehemiah's time were waiting for. He is the one at the end of the Old Testament as we come to Malachi and there's 400 years as we wait for this resolution. He's the one that we were all waiting for and he came. He came and we celebrate his coming with Advent and Christmas and we rejoice. <laughs> And we turn towards a savior who forgives his people from their sins and gives them a new covenant which is written in his blood and not ours and not that of goats and bulls. And we hang now in the between time, in this liminal time where between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus, we wait for his coming again. <laughs> and he will come again. And there will be that final, final resolution, that final coming of our Savior, where there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. But in the meantime, we rest in our Savior, in our Messiah, in the one who has come to save us. That is the only resolution for our sins. It is the only answer to our problems. And we, like the people of Israel, we'll go through our cycles, and we'll have our times of dancing on the walls, and we'll have our times of messing up and breaking covenantal promises. But we have a savior that has come to save us and deliver his people from their sins. And if we put our trust in him, we're safe. We are saved. Let's pray.
Lord, we do come and in this first day of Advent, we wait. We feel at times, particularly at times like this, where we hear mixed news and bad reports, we feel the dissatisfaction of our souls. We feel the discordant notes. We know our own failings and falterings. We know our own struggles. But we thank you that we have a Savior. We have a Messiah who has come. And so, Lord, we turn our eyes towards you uh, this Advent time. And God, for those perhaps who've never put their trust in you, never, never turned towards this new covenant, never accepted the forgiveness that comes through a Savior, through Jesus Christ, to save his people from their sins, I pray, Lord, that there may be those within earshot of my voice today that would, that would turn towards Jesus, that would turn towards him for the forgiveness of sins and the resolution of this problem, the forgiveness and the cleansing of our hearts in the right relationship with God. I pray, Lord God, that you would forgive us collectively and individually of our sins, that you would purify us from all unrighteousness, that you would save us. We are still a people in need of a Savior, one who has come to forgive us and to cleanse us and to forgive us and to rescue us from our sins. And I pray if anyone does not know you today, that they would get to know you, that they would offer their lives to you, turn towards you for hope and for peace and for joy. Anything else will not satisfy God. And take us, Lord, in our sinning and in our failing and in our faltering and in our covenant-breaking lives. And, Lord, lead us back to looking to a new covenant, a, a Messiah, a Savior. And Lord, in these coming weeks, I pray that we will celebrate and give thanks for every good and perfect gift that comes from you. But most and foremost, we will give thanks for the greatest gift that was ever given, what was described as an indescribable gift of inexpressible joy. A Savior has been born. His name is Jesus. And so, Lord, we fix our eyes on you afresh this morning. Thank you, Lord, for this new covenant which is written on our hearts. Thank you, God, that you have brought us into right relationship with God. Thank you that you are carrying us through until that final time where you will come again and we will meet with you. So God, strengthen us in this day, we pray. And as we end this story of rebuilding, we thank you, God, for the great times. We thank you for the dancing on the walls times. We thank you, Lord, for the times of celebration and cymbal clashing and choir singing. But God, in the more difficult and discordant times, we thank you too, Lord, that we still celebrate a Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>